times Tall tells some big lies Fall under your category Get with Aaron and Joe's Cause you know you wanna go And hear them cooking up a story Just get with Aaron and Joe's Hey, you know you wanna go And hear them cooking up a story all right, friends, welcome back to another episode of Cooking Up a Story with Aaron and Joe's. This episode is brought to you by ACC Crappie Sticks. Just so happens that we have Andy Lehman, the owner of ACC Crappie Sticks, in-house with us tonight. I hear that these are the best crappie sticks you could use. Best fishing poles, right? What do you think, Andy? Um, yes, you guys kind of, I, I, I'm honored to be here and honored to talk about it spur of the moment come up with something talk about a pressure cooker yeah yeah we're in a lot of stores all over the country um we also have a website yeah acc dot com. um always working on new and innovative stuff we have a lot of youtubers out there you can check them out and um yeah it's an honor to be here and thank you very much for having me wouldn't have it any other way joe martinez what do when we're thinking about what a man looks for in a crappie rod what are you after well i think it depends on the guy as much as where you're fishing you know somebody some some guys like the pretty rigid some guys like them a little soft a little soft tipped a little more give some guys like long ones. Some guys like short ones. <laughs> Seriously, this sounds like how I look for women. You bet. Uh, or they look at look. They look for you, Andy. If I'm a novice crappie fisherman, and I go out to pick up one of those green ACC crappie rods, what would be my go-to to get me by in multiple situations? That would be either the six-six or the seven foot maybe the eight you can cast with them you can shoot docks with them you can jig brush piles with them those are probably our top three sellers and you can you can you can walk around a pond with your kids cast to it catch bluegill you can catch small bass anything you want to do with it is there uh would i be wrong in saying that crappie fishing would be probably the premier entry into fishing Definitely panfish, bluegill, crappie. Um, it used to be looked at as just, you know, old men that would would catch something to eat, and it's growing so fast. The crappie um, crappie market and crappie fishing is getting so popular and growing so fast with live scope, and 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 now these big boat companies are putting money into it. Gotcha. So it's awesome. uh, it's really growing fast. And, 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 and you mentioned uh, you mentioned the the dock shooting. You know, a lot most. I'm going to say most people don't know what that is. And that's where you, you know, bend their back and kind of. Yeah, it is definitely on a a few lakes in the country where you pull it back and you can shoot it. You can literally skip that bait 20 feet underneath the dock. And like I say, most you you talk to a lot of people that don't crappie fish, but you talk about dock shooting, they have no idea what that is. Yeah, but with those shorter rods, you can do it all. Like I said, you can fish a brush pile. Vertically, you can cast over a brush pile. Like I said, you know, walk around, fish a, a creek or a pond with your kids. Let me tell you something. This is unique because I was going to catch ocean crappie, big old Pacific halibut, in the state of Alaska earlier this year. And you know, whenever you're sitting on a plane flying across country and 
you kind of nervous about who's going to be sitting next to you. You're watching people come down the aisles, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I hope that's not going to be. Oh Lord, I don't want that <laughs> one next to girl. me. Or big, you know, you just you could smell the dude. Hope walking. it's her. Hope it's her. Oh yeah, and you got that hope it's her <laughs> deal. Well, just so happens, I'm that guy walking down the lane. There's already two people sitting in the chair, and uh, I'm a window seat type guy. And I'm walking down, and I see there's a, a couple sitting there. And I said, that's, that's my seat right there. And I sit down. And I sit down next to a great companion, these two people on the plane. And for three and a half hours, we discuss what I consider a fantastic career. Um, I grew up watching... Jacques Cousteau and Mutual Omaha and seeing on on the weekends these shows popping up, whether it be Nova on PBS or whatever. And part of my passion for the outdoor, Andy, was learning from watching stuff on TV. Um, Just the love for wildlife, the love for geology, all of this stuff. And I've always wanted to figure out how in the hell do these guys video something two weeks ago i was sitting in the deer blind with my son and it was the fifth time in my life i ever had a bobcat come up within say 25 yards now i've seen bobcats at long distance but to get that close 25 yards to a bobcat was was a unique experience right and we were kind of in awe of this deal if I told Aaron, me and Aaron's going to go out and sit in a blind, and I'm going to show you a bobcat, we may have to sit there for a month yeah. to get this to happen. So these individuals who who provide us with this entertainment, this knowledge of filming stuff, I got to sit next to that guy on the airplane. His name's Mark Emery, and uh, he's our guest tonight, Aaron. He sure is. Mark, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. You bet. And, and uh, it's good to have Andy on board, too, because I, I started off um, initially working on fishing shows for In Fisherman, and, and I ended up uh, uh, directing Shaw Grigsby's show for 20 years. And, and we just did a lot of different things with fishing shows and got a lot of my underwater chops working on those kinds of shows. So uh, great experience and still fish all the time and, and really enjoy it. So uh, I think it's one of the great things that you can do is get young people started in the outdoors like that. Amen. Amen to that. Definitely. I want. I'm curious about while well, we're on the plane ride. How was your experience riding next to Joe Wilson on the plane? <laughs> well, I didn't go to sleep. <laughs> I bet you did not. <laughs> uh, man, I think personally, I was more curious in in Mark. Yeah. And uh, I was trying. I was trying to do what we do on the show. I was trying to drive this information mm-hmm. out of curiosity. And I think we're going to get into some of that. But first, Mark, we like to kind of start. Uh, give us a little background. Give us a little bit of your history where are you from what and kind of build us up to where you are today well i grew up here in, in central florida um uh dad was an eagle scout and got me in the outdoors early on and and so spent a lot of time with some really great folks here we had a guy back in the day who was kind of the croc hunter of the world there's a guy named ross allen never got enough uh, attention later in life but he did the old johnny wise miller shows uh, he was underwater doing the alligator catching shots and all that stuff and he was kind of our hero. And so we would uh, go listen to him speak and eventually went to work for him, uh, wrestling alligators and milk and rattlesnakes five times a day. And you go to a pit 
uh, be 150, 200 rattlesnakes and have one pop a balloon out of your hand and do all kinds of things. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, I started with him about 73 or 4. You know, people thought a rattlesnake was from Mars. I mean, they thought it could jump six feet or they have no idea. And we have that many on the floor. There was no ADD in that crowd. Everybody's focused on exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so we learned to do storytelling and public speaking to groups of people while you're milking a rattlesnake or while you're doing working with an alligator and not getting bit. Um, uh, and we all eventually got bit by something sooner or later and had alligator bites and rattlesnake bites. Uh, but at the same time, at home, my parents were both classical musicians. Dad was a football player on a Youngstown football team. He was a center and tough guy and all that kind of stuff, but ended up having a great voice and, and, and sang on, uh, under Leonard Bernstein and New York Symphony Orchestra and choirs and stuff, not as a soloist. Uh, but nonetheless, they were that class. So at home, I was getting you know, training and how to do Mozart, and I just wanted to be outside. So mm-hmm. eventually, that all kind of congealed in a weird a way that we've now written soundtracks for about 320 TV shows, including Walker's Cake Chronicles and uh, Shaw Grigsby's show for 20 years and many other shows in Fisherman. And then at the same time, I get to be outdoors and do all the things that I really love doing, which is, has been for the last 30-something years doing it for National Geographic and BBC. And we've even worked on some of the Planet Earths and the uh, shark shows and all those kinds of things. So it's been a great life, and we're very, very lucky to do that. But I think that when you're talking to young filmmakers coming along, or even young people want to do um, outdoor filming like the fishing shows and hunting shows, is to get a real broad base and really get with other people who are really good at what they did. And I got very, very lucky because there was a guy in our town who invented cinematography. He made the first underwater cameras, and he made the first tanks that worked well, and he worked with Jacques Cousteau. And he was across the lake from me, so I took my little John boat and run over there and go to work for him and work for him off and on for 18 years. And so when I got to D- Geographic, I got my T-shirt. I could was going underwater with grizzly bears, filming them underwater, and and salmon and all kinds of other things. And uh, and and I would have never had that if I hadn't started at the very bottom. But you know, learning from somebody like that who's so good, they're not particularly patient with you. <laughs> he actually wasn't bad compared to some filmmakers, but. But it, you needed to learn stuff right away, and, and, and they would mess with you. They'd put a, a dime in your regulator, you'd go down and take two breaths, and there's no air. And you screwed up. You didn't check it first. And, and so you only did it one time. But um, there Mark, was constant there, yeah. there's There's a lot to unpack in this first three minutes, right? Yeah, now. No I believe the hook, <laughs> the hook in our listeners has been set. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't be good hosts red words if we didn't steer mark back to where he said he had been bit several times <laughs> by the alligators and, and, the rattlesnakes, yeah. and the milking of the rattlesnake uh go ahead mark kind of give us some details on that one bad day <laughs> well luckily it didn't all happen on one day but uh, <laughs> uh the the rattlesnake bite uh i had to drive by it once before uh just uh got too close to one and, and didn't work out real, real well, but it didn't, and you can get a bite without being envenomated. And so that's what happened on the first time. But the second time I was, we would have a group of adults that were mentally handicapped and they would come in and we would talk to them about snakes so they wouldn't be terrified and be all excited about them when they get out in the woods and accidentally see one. And they bring them in every year and here are adults that are in their 20s or 30s or 40s and they're still 11 or 12 years old. You know, I mean, and, and even less in some cases. So they were loud, and they were, and we were trying to calm them all down. And there's probably 100 
80 to 100 people in a show like that back then. I don't remember the number. And the snakes have a moat. A uh, snake pen has a moat around it and a, and a classic kind of uh, clear glass thing that you couldn't get into it. So the snakes are uh, in, piled up in certain areas. These were wet. So I picked one up that was wet and didn't look at it real well. When an alligator or a rattlesnake uh, is wet, there's certain things you have to be careful. One of them, in the, in the case of the rattlesnake, is that they can be getting ready to shed their skin. So their eye would be blue, right? It doesn't, you can't see even the, the little slot that, that gives him his vision. And you should know immediately that that skin can come off at any time. So when you grab a rattlesnake, believe it or not, you don't grip it like you're gonna kill it. You have to grip it firmly and put part of it up underneath your arm and then peel back his, uh, the little uh, areas around his fangs and, and pull them back and put them onto the, onto the cup and then and drain the venom. While I was doing all this, he just turned around in his skin. Oh, God. Because wow. his skin came up. Right. You're looking down at it from 18 inches and going, oh, geez, here goes my day. And I didn't want all those people to see what went on. So I, I told him I was going to take a little break and, and I'll be right back with you. And we had a switch over there you could flip. It would go to upstairs and they would know that you were hurt or you're in, having a trouble in your show area. And they, and they came down and got me. And, but, but, but in the meantime, I just talked to them calmly, and I could feel venom going into my hand, but a lot of it was collected underneath my knuckle. So you can get all kinds of bites, depending on where you get bit. In my case, I was lucky, and, and a lot of it was underneath the, uh, uh, right there on this finger, right underneath, the, uh, right around the knuckle. And, and the other part of the bite was, it definitely envenomated me. So you felt it moving up your arm and all that sort of thing slowly. Um, but the other one felt like a wasp sting, and he, the other folks there, they are they at that time were some of the greats in the world at that. They were the goats of of uh, snake wildlife. I mean, they'd done cobras, they'd done all kinds of snakes, and they'd had bites of all kinds. So they came down and washed it out real good. And that's a basic one-on-one thing to do in a rattlesnake bite: is just wash it out. And so they washed it out on my knuckle. They probably got two drops off. That probably saved me three weeks in the hospital. Oh, yeah, both yeah. four to five drops. You can die. A larger frame person like all of us, you usually you can survive it, even maybe without antivenin. Um, but in my case, uh, I was able to get that. And, and uh, I had to set up a hog hunting uh, trip with a buddy of mine, and I didn't want to miss it. So I went to the hospital for a day or two, and I was feeling okay. So I took the IV out and called in a bunch of pieces for the nurses and took off with my buddy. And I got into real trouble when I got back, but we did catch a bunch of hogs that day. <laughs> is is anti venom a one time deal? It is uh, an every time deal. In other words, if you get bit and you use anti venom, you need to get checked every time. There's a thing called a prick test. They put it just underneath your skin. It'll bubble up black if you have, uh, a, a, you know, if you're allergic to it, for instance. And uh, you don't want to take it if you're allergic to it. You can have all kinds of terrible reactions. You could even probably go you know, into a coma. Uh, it's really powerful stuff. It comes off of a horse. And so you can not be allergic to it one time and get checked again, you know, the next two or three years later, so you get bit again and be allergic to it um, the second time. So it doesn't doesn't build up or uh, the, the weird thing about rattlesnake venom as opposed to, say, cobras and that kind of thing is that you don't you can't build up an immunity to them. If that's kind of what you're getting to. Um, you, you, it's It's a neurotoxic on a cobra. So your body can eventually build up a, a resistance to that. Uh, with a rattlesnake, it eats your blood cells. It's mm. eating your linings of your veins and your arteries. It kills white blood cells, so you can get infections really quickly um, because of all this. This is happy dinner time stuff. Just, just, yeah, this is great. 
this is good. Uh, this is this is what we this is what we need in our life. So, the first time you're tasked with the duty of milking a rattlesnake, are are you big man? No big deal. Or are you? Uh, how how does one? Yeah. You know what I'm you know what I mean, Aaron? Like uh, yeah, I'm if I tell you to come over yeah. and milk yeah. my snake for me. There's no chance. <laughs> There's no chance. I got no comment. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really throw you in there with a crowd first thing. Uh, what's gonna happen is they're gonna have a guy with you that uh, in this case it was a friend of mine and we've caught snakes together. So I knew how to handle or catch a rattlesnake. There's several different ways you could hold the head. One is to push your forefinger on the top and, and, and these other two fingers on either side of the head and that stabilizes them and that works pretty well. I, that's all I'd ever done. And then I would usually drop them into a bag and flip the bag off you went. Most of the time in the wild, I never did that. I would pick them up with a hook and drop them in something. I don't advise ever picking up a wild snake when you don't have easy access to medical care if you need it. Some people are allergic I'm to a rattlesnake bite. I'm just not going to do it, Joe. I'm the same way. Leave them alone. I'm out. Yeah. Spiders and snakes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So at any rate, that's all. And so there was a guy there that helped me, Jerry, and he pulled back the fangs and showed me how to do it. We went through it a couple of times. And if you're already used to handling them, the one thing that you would be surprised at is if you hold them for very long, you're not going to get a date for a while. Uh, a rattlesnake has musk and it comes out of right at the base of his tail. The worst one is uh, moccasins. They have one that smells like a rotten cucumbers if you ever have to hang uh-huh. around. Run. And, uh, and that's that musk will get all in your clothes and everything like that. They can actually, it's a mist kind of spray it. And I've seen it photographed once in a while when somebody really get a big rattlesnake and pick it up and that would happen. Hmm. The kind of girls that Bill hangs out with, they're attracted actually to rattlesnake musk. <laughs> uh, it is a wonderful smell, actually. I think, I think that's probably going to be for Bill. Yeah, it's going to work it every time. <laughs> we'll ship him some of that. I oh, hear that, that Axe deodorant is actually coming out with a rattlesnake musk scent that uh, <laughs> that, that helps quite a bit. So whenever you you're you're playing around with these alligators, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, traditionally, whenever an alligator will bite you, it's going to go in the death roll and start spinning around. Do you have a, a do you have the mindset? Whenever this is taking place, to to escape or are you, or do you freeze up? What's what's the status on that? In in most cases, on alligators, when we catch a large alligator, it's at night. So I'm blinding him with a light, or a friend of mine's blinding him with a light. Uh, this is no longer legal, and probably wasn't legal at the time. But they were on big cattle ranches, and we were catching them and taking them and put them in, into the river system, so that we didn't have to worry about getting caught killing a rattlesnake when they're an endangered species list, but they wouldn't eat cows. You know, they'll take a calf and pull him under and you're done. So we were taking, we would rope them and, and pull them up out of there, uh, a big one. But I did catch one big one one time. I'll never do it again, but it was in, in the, never measured him, but it was in the 10 foot range and pill, pinched him at night. And what you're doing, uh, you, some of you probably wrestled. Uh, I ended up being on the ESPN kickboxing circuit for a while. I've done all kinds of stuff like that. But what you do is get those hind legs so he can't plant them. I'm going to kick them back with my legs and push them out of the out of the mud, so he can't twist and turn like you're talking about spinning. And then I'm going to, I already have my hands around his, his neck behind him, and you pull his head up just like you do in wrestling. He's going to follow his cranium. You know, you pull that thing back, he's going to go back. So if you're in 20 feet of water, you can grab him tilting, and he'll go right on up to the top. Um, then you've got trouble because when you get him to the top and he gets free of the water, I got hit 
just gosh in my 60s i'm 69 now but i got hit probably four or five years ago in the jaw so hard that my mouth formed like a regulator so i'm walking around oh <laughs> man yeah they invite me to the church choir that that week so did just you here. say you were catching alligators at 20 foot deep in the water I was about 30 feet over the headwaters of Silver Springs, and we have photographs of all this. So it's a, it was a BBC crew with me, and they were happy to delighted to take pictures of my failure to do it correctly. <laughs> and all that can be found at uh, markemoryfilms.com. <laughs> well, I do have stuff on the Facebook. I don't usually display that particular shot, but I do have it. All, I have had put it up there in the past, and then yeah. so it's a, it's a Mark Emery uh, Facebook uh, page that we have. This it's got about we could. 5,000 people on it now, and so there are a lot of, can't take a lot of new people, but I can at least look through there, I think, okay, and get around on it. Yeah, I'd say that's a good place to start for our listeners, <laughs> well, yeah. to so, get an understanding. So, Mark, I, I remember on our flight, talking about alligators and filming in, in the water, yeah. alligators, you mentioned to me that you actually filmed like a, a Navy SEAL promotional yeah. video. And yeah, we that was a that was a great story you told. Tell our listeners about how you had to tie up this alligator and the swimming and all the stuff you told me. Well, first, I want to make sure that people don't re- realize this is separate from National Geographic. We don't tie up alligators on our shows. When I swim with one of the alligators at Silver River near our house, 15 minutes from here, is absolutely clear water and a good population of alligators. So I can, in the winter, they don't eat. Uh, literally, they don't hibernate like maybe some species do, but they're really not aggressive as far as eating. So I film them in the winter. You know, people say you're crazy and all that, but I've worked with them for 30 or 40 years, and I know when things are not going well, and, and so I just back off and let them be what they're going to do, what they're going to do. But um, when we do something with a commercial, you have one night, you have to they bring in a crane with a huge light. We're going to do it at night. Uh, Navy SEALs have all their gear. There's no bubbles. They have rebreathers. They have scooters that don't have any bubbles everything's got to happen like bam 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 we've got a hollywood director up on the top of the dock and he's got a speaker underwater talking to us so the first thing we wanted to do is have it swim right towards the camera the alligator is about eight seven and a half eight feet long it's chubby so it even looks bigger and underwater it exaggerates 23 24 percent depending on who you talk to and that makes him look like the tyrannosaurus rex when he's coming at the camera so what i did is took a hundred pound test line and tied it to within about two inches of the tip of his tail and lined it up really straight with him and and with the cameraman was shooting a 35 millimeter movie camera big camera like that and so as it's going towards the camera if you just feather that line a little bit he'll fade a little bit off to one side. So you could literally control his movement in the water because he didn't have any grip on anything. He's in 15 feet of water. And the Navy SEALs were right behind him. And as he peeled out of the way, they moved through. So it looks like alligators moving out of the way for the SEAL team. So it was a commercial for the Navy. I was mixed. And and so we did it about three or four times. And we got it. And the guy called back down and said, Mark, can you kick out quicker? Uh, we want to get a shorter version of that. We've got a 45 and a one minute already, and we want a 30 and a 15 or whatever they wanted to do. They're just the lengths, cutting it back. So, okay, so talk to them. I said, look, if I kick out with you guys right behind me, I'm going to whack somebody in the head. And they're like, <laughs> I felt stupid. They're Navy SEALs, right? They, yeah. they ran into each other's gear underwater. They're never in clear water like that. They have all kinds of things. Uh, but I did have a good kick. I was never a great boxer, but when I kicked somebody, they remembered me for a long time. And, and so I kicked. Navy SEALs a couple of times in a row while we were trying to pull this short 
shot off. And the third time I looked down, there was a gun barrel between my legs. <laughs> so we all popped up to the talk. I said, I think we need to have a little talk here. What's going on? He goes, well, if you could give us a beat, like a one, two, three, and then kick out, we'll be just fine. But we're already moving with the scooters and you're kicking us in the head. <laughs> so, okay, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your forgiveness. That's very kind of you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had around a, there. Really wonderful guys. We had a lot of fun, and, and, um, and oh, and later on in the night they they disappeared, and we were everybody was looking for them. I was underwater bringing out a fresh alligator. We wore the other one out, and the guy, the Hollywood director, goes, "Mark, can you find our SEAL team? They're not in the cave down below. This this cave setup is 35 feet down. The cave is 84 feet long. It's one of the largest freshwater springs in the world." We put 100, about 70 feet of mylar on the bottom and then had a giant light hitting that mylar. So it just looked incredible underwater. And the, the there was no seals to be found. I dropped the alligator off with a buddy and I went down away a little bit looking around for him. I couldn't find him. I said, hey, what am I doing? It's 2 a.m. in the morning and I'm looking for a Navy SEAL team in a place that I swim in all the time. How come I can't find him? I figured they would be outside of where they could hear what he was saying. So I just went down to the first place that I thought they couldn't hear what he was saying to them because would, they would come in. And there they all were in, in a semicircle, just like their guests. I'll, I'll tell you this. If I grew up there. I swam in that piece of water all the time. If, if I had uh, bet that they couldn't hide from me, I was wrong. They were neck deep in um, eelgrass. Just their heads were showing. Parts of the guns were showing. And that's all you saw. And you had to be 15 yards less to see them at night. Toast. <laughs> they had wow. you. And so the, the, the way they were curved was so that, I, I guess, no crossfire on each other. If you were in a real battle situation, that's what they were trained to do. And it is extremely effective. And we had a good laugh after that later on, too. So. Wow. Do you guys think we got a fairly decent guest for yeah, tonight's show, wait, man? I'm making notes right here. I want to get into a little kickboxing, too. <laughs> Sure, there's some stories of this group here too that I could enjoy. We'll have to talk later. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, there's so I think through my research or maybe it was through our conversation, you've been to like thirty plus countries, filming and and doing your skill. the The thing that amazes me is is a lot of times when we watch these shows and Andy, you could you could I know you're a fan of these kind of shows oh, yeah. too, but you may be watching a video and it's got like two snow leopards up on top of a cliff and not only is there two snow leopards up on a cliff but these two snow leopards may be mating or something right yeah and there's probably 10 snow leopards in the whole damn world but somehow this guy with the camera can locate two snow leopards and get them screwing on the side of a mountain now, Andy, I like hunting, and if I was our guest, Mark, it sounds like the type of guy we need to go hunting with. If he could put himself in the position to get these shots, I, are you a successful hunter too, Andy? I mean, Mark? I'm, I'm a poor boy hunter. I grew up poor, and so I would buy two boxes of slugs. So that would be what there were boxes of six back then. So you had a dozen. At the end of the season, I had twelve dead animals, but. I, I was not a great hunter, no distance. I don't know how to shoot a, anything with a scope. I get within about 20 yards and he's going down. And, and 
Yeah, mostly wild hogs is what I shoot now, but I shot deer and stuff and turkeys and stuff earlier. Uh, but just real slow, take your time, um, work on your breathing a lot. And um, so, but, but the other thing about what, what we're talking about filming wise, there's some explanation for that that should happen because uh, people see what you're doing and there's kind of like, are they super stalkers or are they, some of the gear is huge. The camera lens I'm using is Seventy thousand dollars. There's another one we use. It's eighty-five thousand dollars. So you can think by the pound what that thing must be. It's twenty-eight pounds for it in the case. It's huge. There's a CN20. There's a couple other different lenses we use. Optima twenty-four to two ninety. These are big, giant, clunky lenses. So you can't sneak up on anything. So what you do is find really great positions where that animal's going to come in and the light's going to be behind him. And then I'm going to find an evening position where if he comes in, the light's behind him. So I get rim light around that animal. So not only do we get to see him, but he's completely separate from the background in low light. And you have it. So the lighting is so important to get high-end shots, not just, you know, something that looks like came off somebody's um, phone camera. There's nothing wrong with those things. They tell a story. But we're going into cinema. They, they put them all over the world in movie theaters. So, you know, this thing will be seen for years in some cases. I've had some of them that we wrote the music for that were on for 14 years. So so it goes to a lot of them. I get a check for enough to buy my wife a White Castle from <laughs> from Israel, 23 cents or something like that. You know, but, but you can find that they are all over the place. And so when you do one, you, first of all, I don't want to screw up. And then they've got what they call a, a blue chip. A blue chip film won't have any people in it. They might have a narrator talking over the top and be a scientist at once in a great while in there. But the whole story is wildlife doing what they do. And that those are the hardest to, uh, to shoot. I worked five years on one. I just got done with one that took two years. And it was on uh, Disney Plus for a year and a half. And it was called America the Beautiful. Oh, yeah. and I, was just working, yeah. I was just working on that one sec- section where the alligator attacks the deer and all that stuff. That took 55 days in the blind to get that one shot. And uh, Went to two different blinds, actually three three different blinds, and 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 the biggest thing is just like where you are, you have location, location, location. You've got great fishing there in Arkansas. You've got a lot of different things that are draw people to your area. When I'm looking for wildlife, I'm doing the same thing, but in reverse. I'm trying to get to a place where there's tons and tons of wildlife and nobody hunting because if they're hunting there, I can move that camera just a little bit and they're gone. I know wild turkeys is probably the worst, right? They they can see everything. So we have to do all kinds of tricks to get them on camera. But but the, the real deal, like brown bears, we can't go, all right, Larry, bring in a gold flex fill and a couple of lights here. Hey, all right, bring the grizzly back in again. We're going to do it all over. It does not happen that way. We're finding a place where there are 50 grizzly bears in one pasture, or last year we counted 73 in one location. So I'm going to a place with the best location of wildlife in the world for that species and i've often already talked to the biologists for that area in my case i've been to this area for 40 years going back and forth so i've been there many many times and taken other film crews as well and then i can get shots like you want to you've got a wolf biting a bear in the butt while he was trying to mate yeah wow. <laughs> did i plan that no when it happened we were rolling <laughs> so is is the the amount of b-roll that you attain during this trying to film a deer yeah. getting eaten by an alligator from yeah. a from a monetary side i i know as you and i was talking you, you said that there's kind of a list of things that a production company is searching for and you go out with the goal to get that 
But in the meantime, while you're looking for an alligator eating a, a whitetail, you're watching a dung beetle rolling up a ball or something. Is that is that how you survive at this deal is by B-roll? No, we don't get to own any of the footage in the film. We will, if you're shooting stills for Geographic, you can, anything that didn't run into the magazine, you might be able to keep those stills. You can make deals with them on that. Uh, but on in this case, uh, when you have a big lens on, you kind of stick to your goal. And, and in that case, you wouldn't be doing the dunk beetle shot. You'd have to have a different kind of macro lens and blah, blah, blah. What you would want to do is is also find other species that are in that same location that you could shoot with the long lens. And yeah, you will get other, yeah, like when we were doing that, we were getting sandhill cranes where the alligators were putting babies on their heads. And as the, uh, the birds came in to try to kill the babies, they don't have a Judeo-Christian ethic. They were baiting the birds, bird, gray blue yeah, parents. I've and, seen that. Yeah. Wow. And then they would take a lunge at that. And it was an effective way to get a bird close enough because the alligators and birds know right where each other is all the time. I've seen wild turkeys come in and just stop and not drink water and walk away. They know right where that alligator is. How, how so, far away are, are you when you're shooting those with your long lens, or how far can you shoot with your long lens? The lens that we used for that was 1,500 millimeters. So what we did was pick ponds that were small enough that every part of that pond I could hit with that lens. Which can go to reach how far, I guess, is my question. Uh, you know, probably, I don't know how far you can throw a baseball, but, but maybe 50 to 70 yards would be top end, and that would be a widish kind of shot, but it'd still be a sharp and a sharpest attack. If you get too far out, there's too much atmosphere between you and you've seen the old yeah. shots have where it'd be a little bit shaky or a little heat coming off the pavement kind of look and and that's what we don't want we want something that just so you need perfect. those grizzlies to be within 70 yards oh yeah much closer than that a lot of times wow yeah. that's 15 crazy. to 20 yards they don't we don't <laughs> approach them though we they, they approach us so that's a different deal if you're sneaking on them that's crazy i would never do that let's hmm. uh, in pasture with two or three people and they see people, they see tourists, and everything on some of these remote locations and other places. I've been on them where they're on a whale, and they're eating a whale. And they've been eating it for a month. They're not trying to eat you. They're, in fact, the big trouble there is the odor is pretty rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for six to ten hours, a whale blubber stench is not great. So, you know, situations as you go along, and you've been doing it for a long time, you build up a collection of how to do things, right? I mean, you just like you do in fishing, you... You learn a technique with a, a six foot six rod, and you go, well, with a 12 foot rod, I can do this, this, and this. We're doing the same thing. I'll go choose this lens to do this kind of project. And so those are the same kinds of things you would do in any kind of, so you're, you're learning that. And so what we're doing now is teaching interns how to do this. And because there's there's nothing online with a $70,000 lens showing you how to do it. Um, you, you, you have to rent it. I lease mine. I don't buy them. Uh, they change every five, 10 years with some new fancy one. I'm not going it's basically trying to sell a mobile home at that point. Right. <laughs> Andy, you had a question. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm fascinated by the amount of patience and just having one goal and one job. So hats off to you for being able to sit out there. Are you camping out there when you're doing this? And how long are you out there? Are you going back to town and get a cheeseburger? How, what, what does it look like when you're out there doing something for yeah. so long? <clears throat> That's a great question. It really depends on, uh, what we're doing. If we're doing grizzly bears or wolves or, or caribou, we'll be camped there. And camping around bears is a real trick. We use now, for 20 years we didn't have this, but we use an electric fence like you use for cattle. Single strand works just fine. And we have a motorcycle battery and a solar panel. And 
that'll keep that thing charged up. I can run that for 20 days. We'll be out there usually 10 to 15 days, and then we run out of batteries and, and recharging and, 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 and space on our hard drives and stuff, and we'll come back in. Uh, the last big camp we did like that was 1,900 pounds a gear. So we literally backpacked that into the woods, set up a shot. So when people think, oh, you're on vacation and you're just <laughs> taking out your camera, it ain't like that, friends. It's right. not at all. Uh, so what you're doing is is trying to take um, a high-end location, let them get used to you for a day or two, and then just be among them and get natural behavior. Uh, we don't feed animals. If you do, all you're going to do is get an animal feeding. And I want mating behavior. I want fighting. I want all these different things. And I want them to just not look at me while we're doing it. And commonly, we have two or three other people on the staff that are all really, really good cinematographers. When you shoot these bigger cameras, it's a different style of shooting. It's not like video cameras. You won't chase it around looking at the thing. You'll notice all the action kind of happens in the middle of the frame. And so we learn to shoot that way. And so we put it on a big theater. If it's racing all around, you're, you're tending to follow that with your eyes and you see the person next to you on either side. That takes you out of the film. So when you go to an IMAX theater or watch it, it's really even more exaggerated there. All the action will be in the bottom third, the very middle of the frame. And so it's very different than the way up here. It's not being snooty. It's the difference between a carpenter and a finished carpenter. They're doing two different things. Um, but when your cinematography is generally much slower as far as your movement of the camera, and it has to be extremely steady. I did breathing things like uh, I have friends who one was on the original SEAL Team 6 and, and talked to them about breathing. And I talked to other folks, too, about how to slow down uh, sniper stuff, the same kind of things. And we do our breathing like that on a super long shot when we know something's going to happen. I'm breathing just like that, and, and so it can't shake the camera. You can't touch it with your hand. It's gonna your heartbeat will go through it on a 1500 millimeter lens. So you're holding on to the base of the camera, the, the uh, tripod base. With the, 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 the head of that camera is, is fluid head. Uh, it's twenty eight thousand dollars just for the camera tripod. So it's not. It's what they would use in Hollywood. Same kind of tripod. We just rent, we just rent those. Yeah, the entry fee oh, sounds oh. sounds kind of high. Yeah, I, we, we rent and lease them as well. I don't. Hey, Joe Martinez, do you remember a dude by the name of Timothy Treadwell? I do not. Aaron, do you, do you, I do. do you know Timothy Treadwell? He's no longer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was that, the, Tim, was that the bear guy? Yeah. Oh, you guys, he was the bear shit guy. Do you guys remember the guy that was living with the bears and the bears were his friends? Don't eat him. Yeah. Till he ate him and they found his watch. Yeah, or he, was, he was doing the self-filming documentary. <laughs> what if I told you, gentlemen, that our guest, Mr. Mark here, had quite the relationship with Timothy? Is that so? Better well, than him and the bears, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about all that. <laughs> we, we, uh, the first time we met him, uh, we were flying in with a crew from Geographic and there was... Uh, a, a lot of money being spent getting out to Whippet's location, and we see a guy standing in the surf screaming. And um, the uh, ocean there has 20 foot plus tides, so landing an airplane that's tricky. And pilot did a great job. We knew he was in trouble, so we got down there. I threw on some chest waders and went out, checked on him. And I had heard his name and talked to a couple other people that knew him before that, and just in kind of in briefly had run into him one time. And I said, Tim, what's going on? Are you all right? And he goes, yeah, I bear got in my camp and got all my food. What is your food doing in camp? He had it in his tent. And there's the bear pasture we're talking about. It was the one with 50 bears in one pasture. So he had no idea what he was doing. This was his first or second year. And so um, and he, he had, uh, I, 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 my guess is it was bipolar. He had 
to take meds for certain things. He'd go up and down. He'd be all over the place, and the next time he'd be fine and calm and relaxed. So he had some problems and, and this, that, and the other. But um, clearly, the very, very. I don't want to go off on him. I mean, we did a, a Los Angeles Times did a short article about all that, and and we they y'all can look that up. And and I made sure with my buddies that what I said is exactly what was said there. And I haven't looked at that in a while, so I don't want to say something wrong. But he would he would just go off on things and it was. He was a real character, but he's not representative of the other people that I work with. <laughs> yeah. Stretch it. Yeah. He was, it was about somewhat about Timmy doing what he, he wanted to be on camera with them and doing all kinds of things the bears he shouldn't do. Uh, he, he did a lot. Joe Martinez, what would you like to ask Mr. Mark here? Man, I, I mean, I had a couple of questions I was going to ask. Of course, uh, I think most of the questions that i had have already been asked but uh you know like the aaron asked the length of where you're trying to take a picture of but Mm -hmm. i mean i think that's already been answered but you know and just the shots that you said earlier how everything's got to be perfectly still the the show that you mentioned earlier i've actually watched that america the Mm -hmm. beautiful and that, I mean, there's some pictures of that, and it's and it's all the equipment that they use. I mean, some of them some of them can be like a hummingbird that's just crystal clear. Mm-hmm. And I get, I think it's the same question. I mean, that you guys had already asked was that just the equipment they that they use and what it cost. But uh, what, you know, here we want that a little bit. What you could talk about is like. Um, how uh, the different things we would use for different bird, different animals and species uh, would be different. In other words, like on a hummingbird, we would use a high-speed camera so you could see every feather and all that. Exactly. And you're literally shooting it up to 3,000 frames in one second. It's the same camera. It's a science camera originally that they used to track bullets and things like that. You saw the puncture stuff when we were kids. What old dude, you know, what's it? A thing that explodes a watermelon or whatever it does. That camera got refined down, and uh, we've, we've used it for a number of different things. But uh, in general, that one, you have a, a what they call a borescope. It goes out about two feet. At the very end, there's a wide-angle macro lens. That is, if I put it right up to your face, your whole face would be in focus, and maybe the mountain behind you would even be, you could tell that there was a mountain behind you. It would be that much wide-angle focus. And so when you put a hummingbird in that, and, you, and you, you have a hide right near where they're coming in to feed on flowers, that that look is just stunning. I mean, you know what wide angle does to things. It makes them look bigger and broader. We do it with our fish, right? If you're gonna get a crop that weighs three pounds, you want them to look six. You know, It doesn't matter how big it is, we want to make it look bigger. And wide angle is the perfect way to do that. The trick for all of you is don't hold him way out. Get down lower than him and shoot up. And you'll find out it even looks bigger without having to you know, get, get a cramp in that upper shoulder. There you go, so, so that was my question. I mean, I, I just I just got back from Missouri deer hunt this last weekend, and I, right. I bought a little tripod on Amazon for my iPhone because yeah, I want yeah. I wanted to film me shooting this deer, and yeah. so I guess my question would be because it didn't work out. Yeah, it's I, mean, it's, I mean, you just barely moved this thing, and it just, it just looks terrible. So yeah. for somebody like me that just wants to film your hunt or you actually sure. harvesting a deer, what would you, you know, what would you suggest 
something cheap that that looks good. <laughs> well, it, you know, as as far as that goes, there's been plenty of that done with uh, GoPros and different things like that. The problem's going to be is that he's going to be far away, depending on how close you get that deer in. If you're rattling him up or something like that, he might come in pretty close. But uh, it's going to look, you know, relatively small. Most of the ones you see on TV, there's a guy in the blind with him shooting right. with a, right. you know, you know what the, you've seen the rigs before, and so that's all. Uh, 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 it says, looks like you're on an old version of Teams update in five days. <laughs> Sorry, if it disappeared for a minute, that's what happened. We got five All days. Right, so, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> anyway, as, as far as the uh, the way to do that yourself, there are people that have mounted GoPros on their guns. They've done all kinds of things or mounted them on their blinds so that they were steady and just really rock solid on some part of your blind. And, and that you can actually now, the newest ones have, you can speak to them and say, go ahead and record or mm-hmm. do this and Turn on its own, or do it on your phone, and, and it's pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so that, and the phones are great now. The the new fifteen apples are, you know, it's a video camera really. I mean, you can zoom way out. The farther out you zoom, in general, the more shake you're going to get. So you do want that on something rock solid. But you can, we would take uh, GoPros and put them on on the weight belt weights that you use for scuba, and just glue them right onto that. So sitting like that, and put them on the bottom of it really fast water stream and a sound and swim right up to it. Let me ask, I, I, this would be a question. What have you been amazed by, by wildlife? Like what's, what's the thing that, that you've witnessed from spending, you said 40 years of your life in the outdoors filming, getting up close and, and not only are you up close, Mark, but you're up close with this premium gear to where you can see things that 99% of the humans have never witnessed before. I'm sure one of the benefits of your career has been the enjoyment of seeing things that no others have ever seen. What's a couple or one of those that stands out to you? And you're close, but the real enjoyment is to be able to share that. If I'm in a mud hut in Africa and I see a kid with a VHS and an old TV and he's watching one of the shows that my friends or I have done, that to me is bringing it home. I'm like, okay, that's here's a kid that may never get there, but he gets to expand his horizon and see all those things. To be able to share all that, it's kind of like a, a, a really good songwriter. He can write a piece, it's still his, but he can share it with everybody. And that's a cool thing about making wildlife films like that and educate people. You know, a lot of the things that happen on camera, there's some funny stuff, like I was talking about the two bears mating and a wolf came in and bit one in the butt and just took off running, screaming across the field. The bear turned around and chased him. And back in the woods behind him, there was a whole chorus of wolves going, oh, just <laughs> They dared him to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I I'm holding the camera, right? You ain't got a hair on your ass. <laughs> You don't exactly. go bite that bear. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna go bite that bear. We'll stand here and watch. <laughs> and then uh, in Africa, we were around elephants doing all kinds of things. It was, elephants would catch, uh, actually kill an elephant at, at night. We were, I mean, the lions, excuse me, were catching and killing elephants at night. So we have shots of them licking the contents out of the hoof or the foot of an of an elephant. So just amazing things that you'd see. The bear behavior, uh, the fights, the all the crazy stuff they do. There's some very brutal things that they do all go into, but um, big brown bears are, are, are amazing to watch. They're probably 
close to gorilla or chimpanzees for intelligence. They're just different. They're not social animals in the sense that they learn from each other, that they use tools much. But good gracious, they can figure out anything. They're just amazing what they can figure out. Do you, do you think with all of your time with wildlife, do you feel like you as being the human, do you... Have you, have you experienced the thing to where you feel like you're closest to closer to being an animal than a superior species? Do you see the common factors between animal and human? Yeah, there, there is a, a, an amazing uh, elevation that we put ourselves in. And when you're with really bright animals, you're going, oh, I've done that before. You know, you, you come back going, yeah, maybe we're not quite as far up the top of the heap as we think we are. Uh, but on the other hand of it, I do know that they don't have hospitals that help people that they don't know. Uh, you know, there's 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 the people do that that animals just it's not in their in their wheelhouse. So uh, I don't I don't really think of myself in that way. I just I'm a paid observer and know how to operate the camera to to get that. And also just learn in location, 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 find really great places and biologists that can kind of predict what might be happening in certain situations. And some of them, I'm, I know from doing it for years myself, but others, you know, you bring in blind. And, and uh, we shot one last year in, in the Everglades for Geographic. It hasn't aired yet, but we're trying to get um, head slaps. An alligator will bring his head up. And in the swamp, sounds could travel on the water pretty well, as you know. And it's a deep sound. He comes back and he slams his head completely shut. And I've been around alligators enough to know this guy was trying to uh, get me out of there. And it was back in the swamp when you around a lot of people. I just sat there and uh, he came up several times. And what happens usually when you get head slaps is they do it towards a tree or they do it somewhere else. So their throat isn't exposed. Another alligator can come up and bite him in the throat and they can be in real trouble, of course. So uh, to get that to happen right at me, I just stayed there for several days. And the third day he came right up to me, maybe eight or nine feet. And I'm got, as wide as I can get with that lens, and he did a head slap right into the lens. And, you know, I you can't predict that. I mean, you just get it, and you go, okay, that worked out. I don't know how it would have worked out the next day. It didn't come back. We got it. We walked away. We don't push it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm fascinated by <clears throat> the the video and the pictures you guys get, but we film a lot, and we'll go fishing. And sure. there's not a lot of different variables, weather, different people, but we're catching crappie. How sure. do you get to the the story of it? We all know it's always about the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the good shows, like Jeremy Wade, the, the River Monsters. Yeah. Right. Do you know that story? He was in India. He couldn't get any traction for this show, and he heard that someone got eaten. He's catching the same fish, turned that into someone got yeah. eaten. And we yeah. know what happened to that show. So yeah. who comes up with that story? And, so it's, and it's kind of the, the plot, it's right? It's always the story. Uh, you know, the... the I was in... in uh, I didn't mean to catch up. Uh, I'm sorry about the delay. But what, what, I talked to Jeremy Wade around a fire in, in the Grand Tetons one night. We have a film festival every other year. It's the largest one in the world. And we all go there to get our work because Geographic's there, Discovery's there, BBC, everybody's there. So you can pitch stories or you can, if you've been there with them a long time, they say, Mark, well, we're doing this. Can you do this, this, and this, or whatever? I'll get two years of work out of that that show. We're sitting around a campfire one night. I was, they have a party in the evening, and I'm talking to him. It's his first year. I said, what are you going to do when you run out of river monsters? Because <laughs> I've done a lot of fishing shows like you have. And I know what's going to happen is you, 
you were doing bass for the 432nd time. You got to do it original every time. And he just started laughing. He said, we've been talking about that. I know it's going to be a real problem. So <laughs> <laughs> even at the beginning, he, that was going to be a problem. But what he did was make it a detective story, as you as you know. He's going to find out how this guy passed and what happened or and how these kids got in trouble with this particular fish. And that was a very clever way of doing that show. Um, there's several ways to do um, shows. One is you can make that animal a character and, and follow him through a season. You can't do that with certain animals. And a grizzly bear can walk 40 miles in a day. In, in 24 hours, we've had one that climbed two mountain ranges and was 42 miles away. He had a collar on, they knew where he was. Uh, so in the, in the you know, nice big rooms in Geographic, they're all talking around a table saying, hey, or wherever, you know, they'll say, well, we'd love to get this where we follow him through the season. He goes, oh, gosh, we got to explain this again because it's a different group of people every five to ten years. And so, you tell them, yeah, yeah, you know, unless you're going to have to find a better guy than me, I'm too old. I can't walk 40 miles. And at the, night, they'll just go. You don't know where they're going. So but certain species are, are real local, and they'll do stuff over and over again, and you can do that. That's one way. Seasonal, you can tell a story in the season, which you'd start off in, in winter and follow whitetails all the way through spring and the fall and come back to winter again. Uh, you can do all those kinds of things. One of the interesting things you can do if you want to see how those kind of stories are made, there's a real unusual uh, streaming site that uh, most of us in the hunting and fishing world don't know about, but a lot of other people do. There's about 13 or 14 million people watching something called Curiosity Stream. And what Curiosity Stream did was the head of Geographic at that time, Steve Burns, who's a good friend, helped me when I first started out. And uh, there was another lady with uh, the Discovery Channel was one of the top people there. They quit their jobs and they they bought 2,500 TV shows, just streaming rights before people knew what that meant. Now they have 3,500 and it's all wildlife, Novas, all the things that you know you can watch with your kids. You don't have to worry about stuff. It's It's... It may not always be on the same page as what you think about certain things, but basically it's wildlife and critters and, and, uh, and their relationship. David Attenborough is on there. I've got six shows on there, a bunch of other people. I've got little shorts that are six to nine minutes, so you can pull your kid up and go watch a, a bear show, and it'll tell you a whole story about his you know, time in, in the woods at a certain time of year or, or how they approach salmon and what goes on with the interrelationship between all of them. And, and those things are great to find out how to tell different kinds of stories because you're right. That that's what you know. Some so many people will come up to you and go, Mark, I got this National Geographic level shot. It's a great shot. It's a good shot. It's not a one-hour show with 600 shots that all work together as a story. One one of the things that kind of spooked me away from watching Discovery Channel yeah. is the fakeness of yes. the shows. Uh, made for TV. Yeah, so like the mermaid deal. I didn't right. know. You know, I, I always thought there was no dang mermaid. But by God, if it's on Discovery Channel, there's a good chance there's gonna a mermaid. Watch, you're going to yeah. watch 30 minutes of it. Yeah, and so I sit and watch three hours of a damn mermaid <laughs> that was as big of a cartoon as ever. And what I've experienced, I'm sure you guys are the same way, I remember when Shark Week was like an educational program yeah. mm -hmm. that you actually learned. And right. I, it's it's kind of like what we're talking about, how do you film crappie show over and over. There's only so much you can do on these sharks. So now they bring in the guy that's missing two legs and an arm and, 
and yeah. you know they do all this stupid stuff and i think shark week has lost a lot of its it haven't watched in a long time because of that yeah okay. it's turned right. into a reality yeah. show and the reason why we tune in to a, a national geographics a discovery whatever it would be would be to actually see animals being animals <laughs> and keep the human side out of it I want to comment on that a little bit because you're going to always hear people, uh, the detractors and people who have not done this. It's, it's like um, Saturday afternoon quarterbacks. You know, you, you go out and go actually have someone. I had a friend, Dante Culpepper, throw me a, a, a an NFL pass one time at full speed. And you can't, Saturday, you won't ever quarterback yourself again. You'll look at him and go, oh, how in the world does somebody jump and catch that? I caught it. But I'm like, crap. It's just, <laughs> right? And, and so when you you see what uh, what we're doing out there, you're going, how in the world are you doing this shot or that shot? Well, what we're doing is in certain situations, we're not faking it. We are recreating a certain behavior that cannot be taken in the wild with any kind of lens. For instance, we shot a heartbeat inside of a, a, a salmon egg. Well, the salmon egg is only five millimeters to eight millimeters. And, and so it's in water that has to uh, create enough oxygen so it's fine as gas permeable eggs on the on the salmon so that has to be really flowing water your camera's going to shake the egg's going to shake you're not going to get the shot so we ended up taking a, a freshly hatched uh, salmon laying uh, the same probably lens that they put in your veins and arteries when you find out you've been eating too much bacon and, and that thing has a little light in it and we stuck it right up to the net. Still, we had a diamond cutter on the set with us. A friend of ours just happened to be there, and he was able to set it up where it didn't move, and we got the heart beating inside of a salmon egg. Now, when people say, you fake that, well, you call it whatever you want, but you got to see how that animal started his life. And it also attaches to that story to the point where you're going, that's a salmon, it's just a fish. Yeah, well, look how he started, and now he's gone 10,000 miles open ocean and come back to where he's born. He wasn't much when he started out and left. He found it. So that's, that makes that whole story bigger right. because of that shot. Do you just not do it because you faked it? I don't consider faking it. I'm recreating what happens in that animal's life that we can't film. And we try to film everything the best we can. And we've made a lot of mistakes, a lot of fun attempts that were crazy. But um, that that's an example of some of the things that people start to Have you ever filmed a mermaid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, several, but they were uh, actors and actresses, and uh, I've never done a merman, excuse me, you're right. And she was hanging out with the Sasquatch. <laughs> I did watch your, your show, and I wish I was watching it with you, because we got thrown popcorn at each other, because you were like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable that they did that, and, and people got fired, and people got moved around at, at Discovery for that, I think. I'm pretty sure that there was a, not a, and they had another one on Giant Sharks, Megla, they, that there's a mega shark out there that there is some evidence some people have seen giant sharks picking up lobster traps and trying to eat the lobster trap in australia and things like that but you know that a shark that big has got a tremendous appetite you're gonna find him sooner or later but they did a whole you know mermaid type show on that saying that he was real and like oh man hey so, hey oh, go ahead joe oh i'm just gonna say he, he asked about the sasquatch what are your thoughts on sasquatch sasquatch <laughs> I, I've never feet. seen one. What do you think? Big feet. What do you guys? Think? He's real shy. What, what do what do we think? Uh, they found him out in Colorado a couple weeks ago. I saw. That's pretty yeah, cool. I've seen that. Those train trip, people on the train passing by. We actually talked about 
uh, baby Bigfoot on the show a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We we have a f- about this now. What is a baby Bigfoot? Well, Mark, <laughs> a, a man of your caliber, wrestling snakes or milking snakes and swimming with Navy SEALs and all of that would obviously be smart enough to know that Bigfoot crawls before it walks. Good to know. And with all of your footage of wolves, mm-hmm. you should realize that the Bigfoots have a relationship with the trappers to where Bigfoots have a hunger for eating wolf meat. Mm. So the Bigfoots will run the wolves into the trap line and the compromise is is the trapper will take the pelt and he'll clean up the wolf real good and just leave them out there leave the carcass for the bigfoots for the bigfoots is it big feets or bigfoots it's a parenthesis and where did we get a staggering amount of information on all this well we can't we can't we can't it it all comes from british columbia if given the opportunity to film in the water or film on land, which way are you going? Oh man, I love underwater. It is so nice. It's so freeing. Nobody telling me what to do. And, and, uh, the cameras now are getting smaller. They were 60 pounds when we started, you know, and, and they were neutrally buoyant. They weren't, they weren't heavy underwater. They, we weren't having to balance it. You got it perfectly tuned. The guy we started with the Thunderball, he did, Jaws, Flash, Cocoon, The Abyss, major motion pictures, and he had IMAX camera housings all the way down to small ones. And so we learned to use a lot of different things. And the things you can do with it is you can be an underwater crane. So when you're above water and you're doing something with wildlife, you can use a crane occasionally, and or we use um, flagpoles and put a camera way up on top of it and put it over a bear, and he doesn't know what's going on. Um, but for the most part, you know, you don't have the advantage of those big open scenes that you can get underwater, uh, and then there's movement. You can move into it real smooth and learn how to film and get perfectly balanced so that you're not shaking a camera underwater. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one I, we were talking about earlier was uh, memorable scenes that you've seen underwater. One was, uh, um, I was working with a buddy of mine that time, and I caught an alligator and let it go into a scene. It was God rays coming through a bunch of lily pads and, and the alligators moving through there and a whole family of otters came in and started just swimming all around and messing with him and doing all kinds of stuff. And we got it. We sent it off to the the guy who wanted the footage, you know, and never got to see it again. But both of us in our minds again still remember how cool that looked and how fast it was going. Those little buggers just zipping all around, just eight or nine feet long and they were not, you know, they're smaller. So it's pretty fun to watch. So if you go on a project say as soon as you leave out anything that you shoot goes back to who's paying you for that project yeah it's called work for hire and it's a straight deal with them on that uh what i do commonly now is that if i know um i I can get a hint of what's going on out there because i know a lot of people and know that some films are coming along i'll start shooting stock and there's one coming up this next year called um i used to be called r america o-u-r America and it's a north, it's north and south America, probably 10 one hours on, on NBC. And I hope this is not secret squirrel material, but I, I, that's just an incredible size plug. And I've never seen NBC do anything like that. But we shot uh, manatee stuff that's the best I've ever shot on them. And, and uh, I, some of it I shot first as stock to have it because 
it's getting harder and harder to find places to film them without 30 people on them all the time. Yeah, sure. So, uh, and I get up early and, and I'm there and I'm by eight o'clock and everybody coming in with their kayaks in. I'm, I'm assuming you shot that uh, bald eagle that's on your Facebook page. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That's I can't afford anybody. That's badass. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. I'm Presbyterian. I can't afford those guys. <laughs> hey, I'm not expensive. <laughs> it, I've had a, a goal from there's there's multiple goals in my death, Joe. And you know where my you know where my last wheel is. I got it. I know where it is. Joe knows where my wheel is. I've updated my wheel over the years. It's it's folded up and I've changed it from time to time. It's just on a sheet of paper. But one of the one of the things that I'd like to have at my my uh funeral is not only real good music but i would like to bring in and i hope he's a friend of yours mark and maybe you could hook me up with this but but the narrator for the bbc david what's his name attenborough attenborough yeah david attenborough i would like him to show up and say some words for me because that dude i let me first let me tell you this mark I'm not a fan of anything British. <laughs> ever yeah. since, ever since they wore those red coats and and were holding <laughs> us back years ago, yeah. I've yeah. I've lost faith in them. But this old David cat, I think you may outlive him. I hope you outlive him. <laughs> you think, you think, I hope yeah, at ninety two, he's, he's looking good. He's, I don't know, boys. I lived a salty life, but that guy can narrate anything and everything and keep you interested the only one who does a better job than old david is when snoop dog narrates that stuff where like the lizards are crawling on the beach or whatever that was great <laughs> um, the first time you know we went to the film festival we've been in the woods for you know months and we come in and there's a thousand people going like this yabby, yabby, yabby. so we actually our film got into the finals at the largest film festival in the world and i'm sitting down with my wife and next to us is david attenborough and so we get to talk and say, what, what's your film on you know because you know we are in the finals on that top row everybody's there it's got pretty good filmer they're not going to get through that crowd and there'll be about six to eight hundred films and they narrow it down to four and so if you're sitting next to him and i know what his film is it's, it's stunning and this is before he did planet earth no, but he was already famous in our world and uh and we we're talking and everything like that so we had a really wonderful just straightforward conversation nothing big long nothing uh, um, earth shaking but it was just a very friendly guy and he knew the places i was talking about i was excited about them and and so then he gets up and speaks in front of 2,000 people, and his hands are moving, and he's just all in it. It's Shakespearean kind of acting, the way he moves. Well, his brother's a Shakespearean actor. You know, his brother passed away a little while back, and he's getting older now. So, yeah, I think, you know, even a salty life as you live, you, you might, uh, you, you probably, you, you might have missed that. Might want to get little. that recording in the can. All right. <laughs> uh, if I can't get David, Bill, I need you to come talk at my deal. Okay. I'll we'll call him tonight, maybe. <laughs> Have him do some stuff where we can get on record. Well, you all got to admit, these documentaries, if they didn't have that kind of voice or that kind of, I'll call it leadership in in the documentary, you've lost probably 50% of the beauty of the show Mm -hmm. because we need that description. Mark's out there filming it. And so the question is, is as you're filming it, do you... 
do you write down what you're seeing or is it just off the play of the video that someone knows what was taking place that day? They've got, they've got a lot of good writers and some of them are biologists. They have researchers. It's a whole thing. It's a whole different section of the film. And one of my buddies uh, did IMAX NASA films and things like that and also worked on fishing shows and geographic as well. So there are people that just do all kinds of that kind of writing that are really, really good at it. And they'll call you and, and ask questions about things at times. Or we would write up reports back in the day when we shot everything on movie film. You'd literally write a report every day about what you got because when you sent it in, they didn't didn't know it was in that can, right? There's a canister that big of 400 foot load of film, and they don't know what's in there. So you would put this has got bears and with salmon, or this has got caribou and mating season, or whatever you had on there, and and that would that would be the way to do it. So the writers would go then and, and research those things and find out about your area, and then also talk to you. And then they also have a storyline that we're trying to follow, and, and they built it on out. Uh, the writing is a huge thing, and, and Amber is actually a writer as well, and that's unusual to have a really great spokesperson and then also be a great writer. Uh, we did one with uh, oh, uh, Thomas Magnum, the old uh, uh, original, and uh, I'm blanking on his name. Y'all can help me out, Mr. Mustache, uh, that all the women like. Selleck. Uh, Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. Yeah, Tom Selleck. So I did 13 days underwater with alligators, and then I did another 20 days above water doing all this stuff. And so the film comes out, and my wife and I are watching it, and Tom Selleck comes on, and he's, he's Tom Selleck said your name on television. <laughs> Excuse me, I was, you know, 36 days doing this, and Tom gets all this stuff for walking into there and doing five minutes of rehearsal and then does the whole the narration and he gets all of, you know exactly so luckily i have a wife that has good taste Go ahead, <laughs> so so growing up i used to watch a show called wild wild america with old marty stauffer and he's kind of he's kind of a local guy he's from fort smith arkansas i don't know if you guys knew that but what are your thoughts about marty stauffer marty's a great guy and, and i've only met him talked to him a couple times at lunch with him one time uh, years ago at, at the film festival and um he employed a number of different filmmakers, and the, one of the ones I made my first film with was one of those guys. It was a guy named Steve Maslowski, and he's Steve's in Ohio, and uh, running back in high school, really good outdoorsman, and made his dad shot the first color picture of a bird in the United States and made films, early films like in the desert and all that stuff for Disney. And so if they had, uh, Marty would be shooting maybe two of the shows out of 13 because it just takes forever to do one, you know? And then he'd have people with a shot list of what they're trying to get for the other parts. And they build those pieces together. It was actually written and done, not, um, you know, for the normal adult audience. It was, if you talk to Marty, he doesn't talk really slowly and plainly like he does. He was told, and all of us were told early on, I would assume he was told that you're talking to someone from five to 80, five years old to 80. And so when you talk, you plainly talk and you don't, flower it up a whole bunch and so you know there are people who did imitations of him and things like that and, and, and to be fair with him he's a very good wildlife man and knows his stuff and so he was he was a real dad and the same thing with uh, the croc hunter he was a biologist and could do the lingo if he wanted to but he he also was a, um, a plain speaker for kids he had a lot of kids watching his show so so, so the way they would talk present things it would be one way but the filming was always done top notch, as best they could do at the time. So, Mark, there's there's more to you uh, than just filming wildlife. Um, the 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 story you, although you're a film guy, but 
the film is one of your sources to tell a story. And, of course, the name of our show is Cooking Up a Story, and, and we believe storytelling is is one of the most important values that a man can have. And and uh, it makes you friends. It can make you money. It, it, it keeps your life going if you're a quality storyteller. So when you write a story or you make a film such as Paradise Park, the stories that... You know, it's called a Silver River story, but but it does have that whole section in it on Paradise Park. It's called the Silver River story. All right, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, when you're interacting with these four men that you said had talked to 10, 13 million people, yeah, how do you? I mean, first of all, you're hearing some absolute unique stories that these men are telling. How do you pick out which story you're gonna you're gonna showcase? How do you put value on that story over the other ones? That's a great question. And, and part of it has to do with actual just practicality. One is, do I have footage that will support what he's saying? Do I have something that goes along that will illustrate the point that he's making? If I don't, I, I might go back and try to get that footage. But, you know, you need something visually to go along with that story. And, and in most cases, I was able to do that. Um, the other thing is I work with an editor I trust. And the editor worked, drove from Orlando here every day for four months, three months to edit that thing. And um, by the time he's listened to it all, he also knows what's going to cut and what's going to work for that show. And and so that was a big deal, too, is to always you, – you, you grow attached to certain things in the film. Just like you you got an old pickup truck, you need to trade it in, right? But, man, I hate to trade that in. This hat needs to go, right? Uh, it's not going anywhere. And uh, – that happens in films. You'll hear something that guy says and it just means all the world to you and, and it doesn't end up in the film and it's like, oh, man, I wish it was in there, but it doesn't really fit. And that's part of good storytelling is that it's smooth all the way through and you don't get pulled out of the story by something that doesn't really match up with everything in it. Mm. Um, and the other thing is Southern speak. And we all have great friends that have different levels of doing that. But just to give you a quick example, I have a friend who I grew up with and she's just great buddy my whole adult life and every year before we go to Alaska she cooks us up vegetables I guess she thinks we're not going to ever get vegetables in Alaska so she makes a really grand dinner invited her dad 90 year old grandfather uh, her 90 year old father uh, two years ago three years ago and after the dinner was over he goes maybe that was good I'm glad you didn't make it any better and she was semi-mortified she said was something wrong with your meal daddy she said he said well no but if you'd have made it any better, God would have kept it for himself. You bet. Mm. Billy, Billy <laughs> You'd heard that before, Joe. Billy always says that. Any better, he'd kept that, it for himself. That's right. And so that's Southern speak, right? That's oh, a yeah. Classic. That. And, and so when you see those and hear those in films, I want to put them in all the time. And I don't always get to do it, but I, I think they're wonderful. Do you, over the years of hanging out in, in Alaska, the, uh, you know, I told you on the plane, I don't know if you recall, but one of, one of the things that we try to do when we're in Alaska is, is be part of the culture, the local culture, and explore the, the Inuit Olympic Games that they play and, and eat the food that they eat. On your travels to 30-plus countries, do you try to – I mean, first of all, we all know that Americans stick out. Right, because yeah. we're kind of chubby. Uh, we walk different. We talk different. We 
it's it's pretty easy to pick out an American in a crowd of foreigners. Do you try to put yourself into a culture? Does it help you with finding locations and building your story? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a huge part of it, and, and we've got a lot of friends. And, and I ended up teaching uh, as an adjunct professor early and late in the season before the season for filming started or, or for guiding. I do both. And uh, so we would... Uh, go into these little villages and, and work with the people there and, and some funny things happened. One, one place I got dropped off and uh, I was actually working on a film for Geographic but I wanted to pick up some shots this day and we were in an airplane and you couldn't keep going because it was, we were shooting the same thing over and over again. I said, if you know a place you can just drop me off where there's a bunch of salmon, just leave me there and pick me up on the way back around. They were counting fish from an airplane. The plane's tilted like this. They're swimming up and down. Creeps like that and at one point, they had fuel starvation. They were tilted too much, and it caught, and it popped, and it wasn't running anymore. So the plane is going into the trees. They get it kick-started again. I go, okay, I don't need If you've got a place you can drop me off for salmon, this would be great. And they go, oh, okay, sure, sure. So they took me on around there and dropped me off. And, and there was a salmon in there. After about 20 minutes, I saw one had a cut in his back just in the shape of a bear bite. It was that big. Typical male, he's still trying to spawn. He's swimming around with his hole all the way down to his vertebrae. And uh, this is a geographic level shot. You're not going to get that uh, downtown Anchorage. So I took off my pants, hung him on a tree, got in the water, and got right up next to him and just sat there and waited for him to come back. And 15, 20 minutes later, man, you're freezing cold water. And he came back and I got him. It was on movie film, so I shot it. I'm trying to think about what other shot I can put with it. I've already got a couple of them. And I hear a noise behind me. And there's three or four different main groups of native people that I work with. At this time, I wasn't certain it wasn't a bear. I thought it was going to be one of those bad uh, headlines, man killed with bear behind or something like that. <laughs> sitting out there half naked. But I turn, turn around really slowly and I see an Athabascan Indian uh, with native guy with a, uh, with a felt shirt on and a 30-30. And... Uh, He's looking at me kind of quizzically. They, Athabascans typically, if they've grown up in small communities, will say something like a paragraph a month. So you don't have to get chatty with them. And he'll say, so he looks at me and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you? Yeah, three or four words is all he's going to say. Oh, uh, well, I'm, I'm filming salmon. Try to do it back, back right? In your underwear? <laughs> I was cracked up and he... And, he, and I said, well, you know, with airplane, I started telling a little bit of a story. It was too long for him. He couldn't handle it. It was, you know, two sentences and a half. He starts walking off. I go, where are you going? You know, I said, he goes, oh, I'm going to hunt moose with my clothes on. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was wondering about a moose So did you story. go with him? Man, a few words. <laughs> I should have. Hey, you should have went with him. Hey, Mark, how did you – how did you uh, – what did you do to win your Emmy? Uh, we won a couple, and just the one we just did, we got nominated all the way to the finals, didn't win. But uh, usually, it's a collection of really good people. You can always stick your chin way up and say, oh, "I won an Emmy." But really, what happens is you get on a film where everybody—I mean, some of these guys I've known for 25 years—and they're just top dog at Eagles, or they're top dog at this and that and the other. And each of them is assigned the right thing to shoot. That works out really well. So the ones that we were competitive at and got to the finals for Emmys or for other awards. 
uh, we're all in, in groups like that where we all uh, just been doing it for a long time and we have a lot of confidence in each other and we know how to work together and, and so it was a lot of fun you know you yeah. work with yeah, uh, playing you know sandlot baseball or basketball with a bunch of guys and they're all buds it's great it's a great fun thing to do and you can get pretty darn good at it but you know if, if there's the chemistry's not right it doesn't come out as a good film most of the time yeah. so, so how many of, how many of you won uh, I got two on the piano and I've got a nomination and then we've been finalists at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. Wow. So, that's amazing. Yeah, in Ocala, that gets me $3 and I get a cup of coffee. So. Yeah, there you go. Hey, I got a question for you. What, uh, through all your travels and, and experiences with wildlife, what makes a man? Oh, jeez. Well, the respect, the respect, I think, is probably one of the first things men look for, but also when you respect animals and wildlife, uh, you'll usually get respect back. You know, you can uh, not rush in on them, we'll sit back a ways and, and let them be who they are. The first time I walked up on a, a, a 25 bears on a whale, uh, I was with a, a gal who came from Geographic to bring the camera, who's a filmmaker herself and a pilot. And I said, y'all just stay here and let's just see how this works out. I want you to have lots of kids. You probably better not walk down here with me right now to see how this goes. I walked down within about 25 or 30 yards of the bear, I mean, and the, the whale, and one of them just took off, projectile defecating, running, screaming in the other direction, basically. And I go, oh, this is going to be good. You know, I'm going to terrorize this whole situation. And, you know, the others just looked at him like, what an idiot, and went right back to eating. So you knew you had a situation that you could just gradually let them get used to you, and pretty soon you're in 25 yards and you're getting behavior that you would never get anywhere else and the uh, whale is probably i don't know how many tons of meat that was but you know they're eating a hundred thousand calories in a sitting mm -hmm. so it looks manly man to be down there hanging out with the 25 bears on a whale but part of it is just knowing the behavior and knowing okay this is okay so it's better than traffic and and, uh, and, like and outside of Atlanta with five lanes going crazy right <laughs> it's and it's yeah. like you said respecting them letting them know that that's, that's that's the key and, and all our relationship with friends and people that we try to do that. Red Warrens, if you had a question for Mr. Mark, what would it be? Well, I was enamored with some of the photographs on your website and the moose with you that close to him with what looks like a minnow bucket or something. I mean, what, what, what is going on there? You got any good moose stories? Yeah, there's two. The yeah, moose that we did a one show called Moose Titans of the North, and I think it's on. YouTube now it's been out so long it's been 2015 or something um, the whole show is a just crazy moose behavior and all the stuff that went on um, but that particular moose I got caught around Anchorage he was going into people's yards and eating stuff tearing up swing sets he was just he had a reputation so they put him on a, a huge place outside of town that has big pastures and ponds and everything like that and he was not tame by any stretch but he was so used to people so I got down in the water and just sat there. And after a while, he came over and just started eating a willow thing that was right there. And uh, then the other thing that we did was what we were talking about earlier with you have a bore scope and you have a wide angle lens on the end of it. I put that, the camera itself weighed about 18, 20 pounds, put it on my knee and just used that as a fulcrum, you know, to tilt oh, it back okay. and forth. That's probably what you saw. And so you're maybe, maybe me to you right now, just that close to a moose. You can smell his breath. And that thing's down there with wide angle macro. So when he came down to eat, you could see the leaves in his mouth underwater. That thing, the first two feet of that are waterproof. So you stick it underwater with your knee, you bring it on back up. You follow him all the way up when he comes up and looks around. And you get these shots, you're going, 
how in the heck did they get that shot? Right. It's because you don't have that lens for starters and you don't have that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go with the two questions. They could be short and sweet. Be $3. Okay. I'll give you six if you do it good. Okay. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Question number one. Growing up, your mom must have been cooking Sunday supper. Yes, sir. What is the, what is the smell of Sunday supper in your yeah. mom and dad's house growing up? Oh, man. If it wasn't me bringing something home, it would be fried chicken most of the time with gravy and biscuits and all the goodies. And it's great. It was a wonderful smell. Does, does that does that smell still bring you home when you smell that fried chicken? We just did it. I, I visualize that scene right away. Okay. Uh, the only time in real trouble is when we had a birthday party and she cooked chicken, and my mother didn't know I kickboxed, and so I was on an ESPN commercial for a fight, and I some guy hit me and I hit him back two or three times, and and my mom goes, Mark, that looks just like you, <laughs> and my brother's going like this. <laughs> sure does, mom. <laughs> All right, so I I know that you've filmed all around the world, but no, no, just but yeah, you know, we've been in some places, but the worldwide, and I'm not there yet. Okay, no. but so say that your friend Joe Wilson that flew with you to Alaska yes, has come across mass wealth, and I had an unlimited amount of money, yeah. and I called you up and said, Mark, I'm going to take you hunting anywhere in the world. <laughs> to kill anything that you want to kill. Where are we going on this trip and what are we hunting? <laughs> yeah, I'm really not, you know, anymore. Mostly I'm just filming them, but uh, I, I would probably think sheep hunting would be great. It's like a Marco Polo sheep over in, in Russia or something like that would be pretty exotic to see them and Ibex and those kind of guys. And then, uh, and then some of the stuff in South America, there's just some crazy animals down there. I'd like to see it close, unless they're in it to shoot them. The jaguars eating the caimans and stuff is pretty pretty bizarre. I'd love to go see that. Andy, what do you got for Mark? Uh, it was an honor to, to meet you and, and talk to you. It turns out I'm a big fan of you, and I didn't realize it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be following you, definitely, and learning some of that story stuff and how to tell stories. And... Um, you talking about going hunting somewhere. We were just down fishing in your neck of the woods on the St. John's River. Who are you? That is a, a mystical, beautiful place. I, I'm sure you've done a lot of footage and probably bass fishing and hanging out there. Yeah, it is. It's an amazing place. Uh, the river that we are living is near our house. It's called the Silver River, where Silver Springs is. It runs down into the Aquaha, which then runs into the St. John's, and then it goes on out to the ocean. So we literally get fish all the way up that um, if they can sneak through the dams section there they have uh, places where they let boats go through and sometimes things come up uh, that river has shrimp in it it has redfish in it it has all kinds of species in it so it's crabs I've been hit twice by uh, uh, rays you know, stingrays in the, in the shallow water where you're fly fishing and flipping flies up underneath dock pulling bass out of there um, we did a lot of bass fishing growing up at, uh, at, on the St. John's so it's a great place and Lake George of course is that big place in the middle of it there's good uh, we call them speckle perch down there but it's a crappie and that's a great place to go fishing for them in that that big lake yeah we were way up on um rodman rodman's reservoir yeah. and uh, we were yeah. watching it was the first time i got to see a manatee and my wife was with me 
And it was yeah. just fascinating. Just yeah. sit, I don't get to see that when I'm crappie fishing. <laughs> and he's sitting there munching on this weed bed, and we're sitting there pulling pound and a half crappie out of it. You don't have uh, manatees in East Tennessee. We, not that I know of. <laughs> I wonder if you got to set the hook on him or if yeah. they eat it. <laughs> I'd say you have to set it pretty hard. That's a good right <laughs> Joe Martinez, what question do you have for Mr. Mark? Okay, here's what I've got. So uh, we've been sitting here talking to mark about some of just some of the people that he's met tom Selleck, jeremy wade this david attenborough uh marty stauffer and now aaron cook me joe Red bill out of, all, out of all these guys who is the <laughs> most interesting person that you ever met or Joe women, Stouffer. or women. I guess we could talk about women. He hadn't really talked about that many women, but I've got you as a man of mystery. You're 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 holding back. I mean, I've got the whole story on you yet. So I know I have to I have to go with Joe because I've known him longer. You know? <laughs> See that I'm the most interesting man in the world. So. <laughs> or the room. <laughs> you know, if we got another second, just uh, I was in. You know, when you flew out to King Salmon and around into other areas, you notice there's like these little small areas where you're going to fly out on a small plane to get to the outer towns like that. And uh, typically, we know everybody in our town. There's only 200 people there, so when we get in that area to go out. You're kind of reestablishing. Come back in the spring, and you see Buddy. You're talking to him. Why not? There was a kid there, a little redheaded, freckle-faced kid. I start razzing him a little bit. You know, so there's not many of us left. You need to be fruitful and multiply. You need to have like 15 or 20 kids. He starts getting at least 12 or 13 years old. He starts laughing. And, and uh, we get to talk a little bit. And, and pretty soon a guy walks up. Uh, I can just kind of feel him walking up. He's coming up behind in a turn. And, and, uh, and uh, I look back at the little boy. And he looks up. Hey, Dad. And he said, uh, so, I'm sorry. He said, I'm Johnny Cash. He goes, Oh, <laughs> well, no. I thought you were going to say Ron Howard. Johnny Cash's kid. Whoa. He said, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Exactly what he said. And the last time I saw him was one of those Jesus things in the early 70s. He got up in front of 170,000 people and said, hi, I'm Johnny Cash. And, you know, 170,000 people went ballistic. And now you're seeing it about six inches from your face. He's kind of like, what are you talking to my kid about, right? You know, and so it was a really, we had a great talk. He loves to fish, and he was taking kids one at a time away from phones, way, even back then. That was probably in the late 80s, or early 90s, ran into him. And uh, taking them out to remote fish camps and spending a week with one, one child at a time. And that little boy, the little boy, was the one that made the film about, you know, walking uh, the, that movie. With Johnny Cash, Mark. So um, I I'd like to say that I I get to run around and I get to meet cool cats and and you're you're damn sure one of them. Um, it's not often we have a guest that's as uh, well traveled, world renowned. I'd say world renowned as you, and and it's definitely an honor that you accepted our invitation to come on our show. Um, I'll be coming back to Alaska on uh, May sixteenth. Is when, right. is when I'm traveling, and I'll yes. be yeah. yeah I'll be on yeah. a window seat, and I hope that maybe we could we could sit next to each other again. Row sixteen. Row sixteen. Is that what it is? <laughs> I'll be going to Costa Rica on February 29th If you're heading south. Anyway. Costa Rica is fabulous. We've done some down there. Yeah, that's you're gonna, if you have. Have you been before? Never have first time. 
love it. That's great. Well, you're a stud of a man. You're you're a man's type of man, the kind of man that we like to talk to. You're a phenomenal storyteller. Uh, I I give you an open invite anytime you're in Northwest Arkansas and we could sit face to face and have conversation. We'd love to have it. Um, and you know what? We'll, I mean, it'd be well worth catching up with you in the future. Um, you got anything, Aaron? Yeah, just check out Mark Emery Films on Facebook and uh, his website at markemeryfilms.com. He's done some amazing work, and you can get just a glimpse of it there. Mark, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. If there's anything any of us can ever do, matter of fact, if you're looking for a new ACC crappie stick, uh, we could probably, we know a guy. We'll send you one. Yeah. We have, I, mean, I got a, a young that we're working with right now that's just learning how to fish. That well, have you, have you ever filmed any squirrels? We might, <laughs> we might need you. We might need you to do another task force. Yeah. There's always good there's, idea. There's always an opportunity. If you're around in September, I might have a judging spot for you at the squirrel table. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a blast. I'd love to hang out with you guys anytime. All, All right, right, brother. Hey, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks Thank a ton, Mark. As always, listeners, like it, share it, spread it around. We love you, and we'll catch you on the next one. They're into barbecue cooking. Women say they're good looking. And to me, there ain't a way to go wrong. If you're out at the lake or with the hippies getting baked, they're gonna love it if you turn it on. If laughter and good times, tall tales and big lies fall under your category, get with Aaron and Joe's cause you know you wanna go and hear them cooking up a story. Just get with Aaron and Joe's, hey you know you wanna go and hear them cooking up a story.